Good morning. Thank you for having me to your pulpit. I appreciate Stu's welcome and introduction. I'm formerly the assistant pastor at Rincon Mountain, our sister church down the hill, and uh, have resigned that position to devote myself full-time to the stated clerk's office. Just kidding. Um, We are in the midst of pursuing God's call in our lives, my wife and I, for the next chapter, and are thinking about church planting and possibly in Tucson, so I'd appreciate your prayers for that as we explore what's around the corner. Let me begin by praying for illumination. Let's pray. God, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the thoughts in each one of our hearts would please you and that you would use your servant to speak words of hope to your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. About ten years ago, I completed my first semester at seminary. A lot's happened since then. For one, my then one- or two-year-old daughter can now almost look my wife in the eye. (laughs) But there was a time when she was, as they say, knee-high to a grasshopper, and she used to ride, not walking next to me, but would ride on my back in in one of those child backpack things. And I like to hike, and where I went to seminary, there was hiking around, and so we would occasionally take hikes and Lydia was riding on my back on one hike and we got up to the top of the of the hill or the mountain whatever it was the trail and I wanted to give her a rest so I took the backpack off and took her out and set her down and she proceeded to scream because I used to know everything about parenting I scolded her saying Lydia no what are you doing? No, no. And she didn't respond. And so I kneeled down, squatted down to pick her up, and I discovered why it was she was screaming. From her perspective, what I thought was a wide open field at the top of this hill was giant stalks of grass. She was completely surrounded by monster-sized trees. And so when I picked her up, guess what? She stopped crying. And I find that that's a very apt illustration for how we see our troubles at times. Is that from our perspective on the ground, we are surrounded by monsters or monster-sized trees. But then when we cry out to God, He doesn't scold us like I did. He picks us up. And then everything's okay. Because we know that even if we can't see everything that He sees, we know that we're in His arms. And so it's that change of perspective that makes all the difference. And I hope to be used by God this morning to help change your perspective. Pastor Dennis and I talked about uh, a New Year's sermon, and this actually is a sermon that I preached last Sunday. And uh, I was thinking this morning of changing my text at the last minute, and pastors can do that. And I said, honey, I preached this last week, and I, 
I gave it as a youth devotion last year, and I just maybe feel like I need to do something different for the people this morning. She said, well, have you thought that maybe we need to hear this again? So I hope that God will use this message this morning to help change your perspective on perhaps trials that you're looking at or facing today or over the past several months or even as you look forward into the new year. The text that we're going to be looking at in this morning's message is the book of 2 Thessalonians. It's a letter that Paul wrote. And it's a very appropriate place to go for thinking about trials and difficulties because in Acts chapter 17, we learn that in Thessalonica, when Paul first brought the gospel there, he brought it amidst much difficulty. In fact, he had to leave Thessalonica, this city, he had to leave the city under cover of darkness for fear of his life. I hope to leave under better circumstances this morning. But you can see the climate that he was, he was, that the Thessalonian Christians were in just by reading some of the opening verses of the letter in 2 Thessalonians. Paul knew about their troubles and, and he, he wanted them to know as a, as a pastor, he wanted them to know that he was aware of that and he loved them. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 3 through 5. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Pastor Paul was proud of these believers. For all of their difficulties, being surrounded by all the trials that they were surrounded by, that they had perseverance, they had endurance, they were managing to make their way through them by the grace of God. But it wasn't easy for them. They needed that boost from Paul. They needed that reminder from Paul that what they were going through was, was something that, that was part of a, something bigger than they could realize. That if they just looked from their vantage point, as it were, surrounded by the grass, they couldn't make it. But Paul was appointed by God to help shift their perspective, to bring them into that, that bigger picture of what God was doing in their lives. That's why I've called this morning's sermon God's Loving Plan. Because we don't always see that for what it is. And we need that change in in viewpoint. We need that change in perspective so that we can understand what God is doing in our trials. So the text for this morning's message, God's Loving Plan, comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14. Listen as I read God's Word. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning 
for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God's loving plan. We're going to look at four aspects of God's loving plan, which come from this text. And each one, I think, gives us a different look at just how God loves us in making a plan for our lives. It's good to know that the things that seem random actually are part of a plan. And not just any plan. They're part of God's loving plan for us. The first thing we see from the text is that the timing of the plan. You can see in verse 13, my version says, because God has chosen you from the beginning. Some manuscripts say first fruits, but it implies the same thing. God has chosen you from the beginning. There was a time that God had determined for you a choice. He has put in place His will for you, this chosen will for you, from the very outset. Now, it isn't clear to me, this word beginning, what the reference is. But as I think about it, it can have a few different implications. It could refer to the beginning of their trial. I think back to Acts 17 when the persecution against the Thessalonian believers began. God had in mind what they were going to go through even before it happened. And so, as Paul is writing as their pastor to encourage them, he's saying, you know what? The things that you're going through right now, God had in mind from the beginning, even when this thing began. He had you set apart as His chosen people in this city from the outset. But I think God's loving plan, the timing of these these, uh, things that they're going through can, can go back even farther than that. And I love this word, chosen. God not only chose them from the beginning of this trial, I think He chose them from the beginning of their lives. And one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 139. And David there writes, recognizing God's God's plan in his life, he says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he's saying, you know what? The trials that you're facing, the timing... It's from the beginning, from the beginning of your lives. God has set you apart as His own people, as His chosen people from the beginning of your lives. And all of this is part of His plan in your lives. He hasn't been caught off guard by these things. There's a special timing at work here. And it started even when you were knit together in your mother's womb. But this idea of beginning or first fruits can go back even farther than, than the beginning of their lives. I think about how Jesus hung on the cross. And on the cross, his elect people were on his mind. That he knew those for whom he was laying down his life. In his divine nature, he understood that he was giving his life up for the church. And he was giving his life up for the church that they might be chosen unto God. And so that from that point in time, on Calvary, God had them in mind. 
God had me in mind as well. Isn't that amazing? My introduction to my Savior Jesus wasn't something that happened when I first believed in Him now some 20 years ago. My introduction to the Lord Jesus took place when God had chosen me from the beginning to be His own child. And then, of course, this word beginning takes me all the way back even more, not just to the beginning of the trial, not just at the beginning of my life, not just on Calvary, but all the way back to Genesis 1.1. Those famous words, a great motto for a life, those first four words of the Bible, in the beginning God. There's great food for philosophers in Genesis 1.1 because this idea of beginning implies that there was a beginning and when the beginning came into existence, God was already there. So I take that by implication that we find the creation of time itself in Genesis 1.1. So by the way, when time itself, the very notion of having a first and a second and a third, a beginning, a middle, and an end, when that thing came into existence... Already God had chosen you. Already God had set you apart. Already He had marked you out as His own and had put into place the very things that He would use as part of His loving plan in your life. And so when the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as first fruits or from the beginning for salvation. We can be confident in knowing that there is a loving plan in place and that the timing of this loving plan is special, which, which I mean by that, it has been specifically designed for you. That's a special timing. A friend of mine, Jerry Naylor, who's the father of one of my best friends, when I was in the middle of a trial about 15, 10, 15 years ago, he came up to me, and Jerry was one of those people that had a sparkle in his eye, and he was always smiling. And Jerry came up to me and said, Phil, let me ask you something. Which comes first, the provision or the need? And I said, well, that's easy, Jerry. First you have a need, and then the provision comes. And he knew he had me, and he smiled, and he says, Nope. First, the provision comes. Then you realize you have a need. The provision is in place, you see, before we have the need. The provision is already there. It's like David had made provisions for the building of a house for God even before Solomon knew that that's what he was called to do. The provision was in place, then the need becomes apparent, and then what we do is sort of like an Easter egg hunt. We're looking for those provisions which we know is already there. God's special timing is so special that He puts in place the provisions that we have before we know that they're there. So when the trial comes, when we feel the need, we can understand that God's loving plan in our lives has already made provision for that. That's His special timing 
for us. This is hard. It's hard for us to get our arms around this because we're not God. We don't see around the corner. All we see is the thug that's there. You know, in, in movies, there's always a dramatic moment at the end where it looks like the, the villain is going to win the day and he's pointing the gun or he's about to grab the hero or the heroine or whatever. And as he grabs him, what happens? He gets you know, shot from this guy over here, or he grabs, or something happens right there, the cliffhanger moment, and the villain goes down. That's how it is with us. There's always something that's waiting to happen. And if we were to stop the DVD or walk out of the theater in that moment, we'd be left with the understanding or the realization or the thought that, you know what, the villain won the day. But God's loving plan makes sure that He and His plan in the special timing and the circumstances at just the right moment that He accomplishes His will in our lives. I feel like a little child sometimes. And sometimes when my younger children are not behaving as they should, I'll say, you need to sit down over here and think about that. And when they're three or four years old, after about 15 seconds, the question comes, is that enough? (laughs) Am I done? (laughs) No, you are not done. But of course, for a three-year-old, 15 seconds feels like 15 minutes, doesn't it? So this is hard for us. We have to acknowledge that God's timing is special and it's not something that we necessarily understand. But this, my friends, is where the gospel comes in. This is the good news. Because if it were only left up to us and to our perspective, we would die. We would perish in our own folly, in our own foolishness. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that God Himself enters into our world. He comes to us and He gives us His perspective, His point of view. And we see eternity through Christ. And we not only see it, we're literally ushered into eternity because God has chosen us to be His own people. I want to ask a question on this first point, and it's a question I'm going to return to several times this morning. We understand that His timing for us is special, but why? Why has God chosen us? Now, our text gives one answer in verse 13. If you look there, it says... We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you for salvation. And that's true. But I think there's another reason. I don't think that God's loving plan and the special timing in our trials that we go through is only about salvation. I think there's more to it. I'll return to that in a little bit. So my first point is the special timing. The timing of God's loving plan is special. It's specially designed for us. The second point is about the process of the plan. The process of God's plan is sanctifying. As God's plan unfolds, that process of unfolding is a process of sanctification. You can see this in the text again in verse 13. He has chosen you for salvation through sanctification. Now, I don't like overly theologically laden jargon, and that's a theologically laden jargon statement, 
<laughs> Sanctification, I've boiled down to a simple phrase that I think will be easy to remember. Ouch. <laughs> the process of God's unfolding plan in your life, it hurts. But there's a purpose for that. And that purpose of sanctification is part of God's plan. I have a friend who's going to help me get in shape this year. And he told me last week, he said, Phil, I I want you to take it easy because this week I'm going to really kick your behind. In other words, he he was going to make me hurt. And he did. I'm still sore from the workout that we did on Monday. I'll recover, though, eventually. I think this is God's sense of humor, though, because I used to teach science. And part of my science teaching, I was also a middle school boys track coach. And when I would coach these boys, I'd give them the workout. And they'd say, I I should say they would whine, Coach Henry, do we really have to do this? Usually after about the third or fourth 200 200 meter repetition or something like that. And I'd say, yes, it doesn't feel good now, but trust me, in the end, this is going to be good for you. Ouch. You've got to go through the process of training and the pain. The truth is, no pain, no gain. That really is true. And it's part of God's loving plan in our lives. God has in mind more than just a track meet, which is what I had in mind, or the sectional championships. God has in mind preparing us for something even greater than that. And so we can trust Him. It's His, par- it's, it's his work of sanctification. What I'm saying is, is that as we meet God on our own, by ourselves, we are sinners. Which means that we are not fit to be in the presence of God. And so His loving plan literally works in us addressing our sin, addressing our needs, addressing our deficit, addressing our depravity even. And as He works in us, His plan changes us and makes us fit to be in His presence. Isn't this the Gospel? Isn't this the good news? That if He just left us alone, if He just left us on our own, that we'd be working our way and working our way and working our way trying to please Him, never ever to be satisfied, never ever to achieve that which we long to achieve, which is a a relationship with our Creator. The Gospel is that God Himself works in us to change us, to make us what He wants us to be. It really is a loving plan. When I was teaching many years ago, I had parent-teacher conferences, and I had a conversation with one mom that I will never forget. Her son was, how shall I put it politely, a real pain. (laughs) And so I was talking to her at the beginning of the year, we would have open house, 
which was a way for the parents of the students to meet the teachers and so forth. And we were only like five or six weeks into the year, and I already knew that this kid was going to be a handful all year. And so I was talking to her about... I was trying to be, in, in, a, in a friendly conversation, give her some tips on parenting. I was 21 years old, you see. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I had a, what I thought was a profound illustration. I said, you know, if a dog is not chained, the only hole he's going to dig is going to be about this deep. It'll dig him all over the yard. But if you chain him to a leash he'll be able to dig a really deep hole. I don't know what she was supposed to get out of that, but (laughs) what I was trying to convey was boundaries are good. That, That was the intent of the illustration. She didn't get it at all. She lived out in the country on like 40 acres, and she said, you know, we let our dogs roam all over wherever they want. And I'm going, oh boy. Well, that's exactly what she let her son do, too. And that was her kind of philosophy of parenting. Do whatever you want and discover whatever you want and no boundaries and no borders and what have you. What God has done, though, is He has established boundaries for us and then He has come to us in the Gospel and enabled us to stay within those boundaries. And when we move outside of those boundaries, His plan goes through the process of making us holy. So the question again, though, is why? Why has God gone to all this trouble to sanctify us? Is it for salvation? No. Well, yes, salvation, certainly, but no, that's not ultimately what is going on here. So we've seen that God's loving plan has a special timing. We've seen that it has a a sanctifying process. My third point this morning is the tools that he uses. And our text gives us three. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. These are his sacred tools. The first tool, or means, if you will, is the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit. And the first thing I want to say about the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is not an it. He is a he. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit is the one who takes that wonderful gospel salvation and, and brings it, literally, into our lives, if you will, into our souls, And not just bringing the gospel, but literally bringing himself. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are possessed, if you will. The Holy Spirit resides in us as believers. He dwells in us. And in dwelling in us, the Holy Spirit is a sacred tool in the hand of the Father and the Son in making us and in bringing about God's loving plan in our lives. And what's wonderful to know is that you can't have part of a person dwelling in you. He dwells in us completely. 
You don't have part of the Holy Spirit. You have 100% of that third person of the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity dwelling in you by faith in Jesus Christ. So what we have is, is we have a, a person within us bringing about the very plan of a sovereign almighty God. What we do not have is we do not have the experience, the full experience or the full influence of that Holy Spirit all the time. And David understood this when in his sin against Uriah and his wife Bathsheba, he prayed, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Meaning, do not take the experience of heaven and of that third person of the Trinity. Do not take the experience of that away from me. Bring it back. My sin has, has interposed a block, an obstacle between me and you. Restore the, the joy of my salvation. Help me to taste again the things of God and of the things of heaven and of eternity. And so what our trials do is they help to bring about in us a greater reliance upon the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so that's why Paul says, he says, that the sanctification is by the Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit Himself. The Holy Spirit is a... And, and this is an interesting phrase that Paul uses. He says it's a, it's a down payment for the, for the hope that is to come in Ephesians chapter 1. It's a forward on our full inheritance. And as I thought about this, I thought about a credit card. And if you have a credit limit, the Holy Spirit gives us, a as we... As we more and more rely on God in the midst of our trials, God increases our credit limit on eternity. So we start out with 500, a $500 credit limit and keeps us pretty close. And as we grow in, in, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, God increases our credit limit and we can make greater and greater withdrawals on that balance, which is that eternal reward of Jesus Himself. We can spend more of our heavenly treasure which leads me to the second tool in God's hand. And it says, through the Spirit, by faith. And so we see that these things go hand in hand. That, the, that not only is the Spirit a sacred tool in the hand of God, but faith is a sacred tool in the hand of God. And that as we, as we grow in our faith, of course, even just the smallest faith, sincere faith, is all it takes to, to receive eternal life. That the good news of the Gospel is that by simple faith in Jesus Christ, we are transferred from being an enemy of God, a criminal in God's sight, to being His friend, to being a son or a daughter of the King. So just simple faith is all it takes to be saved, and yet our faith grows over time as we go through trials, as His plan unfolds in our lives. And so our faith increases. And so I love the words of Jesus when when he asks, do you believe that I can heal your son to that man? And the man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. So all of us find ourselves in a position like this man. We find ourselves in a position of belief. Yes, I believe. Jesus is the Lord. Heaven is my home. Help my unbelief. 
Help my remaining imperfections. Help me walking by sight and not by faith. I know that it is impossible to please you unless I come to you by faith, and yet I continue to come to you by sight and not by faith. Help me, God. And so faith itself becomes a tool by which, God plans unfo- by which God's plan unfolds in our life. I have found that as God increases my faith, what He does is He increases my perspective on His big picture. That as my faith increases, He lifts me up. Higher and higher until I can see things from where He stands where I can see that it is in fact not an angry plan, not a mean plan, not a cold and a cruel plan, but a loving plan in the hands of God. And faith is a tool or a means by which I discover that. My faith literally moves me from a position of unbelief to a position of belief that God is for me. Who can be against me? What can then separate me from the love of God? The third tool that God uses, the text says, by faith in the truth. Sanctification takes place through the Spirit. It takes place through faith. And it takes place through the truth. Now, this this is a a clause in the truth. I think we can understand this to, to mean faith in the truth. But I think we can also understand it somewhat independently by saying through the Spirit, through faith, in the truth. The truth, of course, is the Gospel. And what Paul is telling the Thessalonian believers is is that by the Gospel itself, we are made made able to, to understand what God's plan is for our lives. Simply by reading the Gospel... By understanding the good news that Jesus Christ gave up for a season His treasured place at the right hand of the Father, taking to Himself human flesh, dwelling among us, living a perfect life that we could never live, dying on the cross in our place, and then rising again from the dead of the third day, simply by reading that, simply by reviewing that, we are enabled to understand that God loves us and is doing wonderful things in our lives that we could not understand otherwise. That we have an advocate on high. But I also think that we need to remember that Jesus said that I am the way, I am the truth. That Jesus said, in effect, I believe, that I am the gospel. That Jesus Himself is the good news. There is no heaven apart from Christ. There is no hope apart from Christ. And there certainly is no loving plan apart from Christ. There is a plan apart from Christ, but it is not a loving plan. And so we see this by Jesus and His Word. We are enabled to come to grips with what is happening around us. We are enabled to see that there is a bigger picture at work here than we could otherwise see on our own. But why? Why is God giving us the Spirit? Why is He giving us faith? Why did He give us the truth? Is it to save us? Well, yes, it's to save us. 
But it's not merely for salvation. There's something else at work here. There is something even bigger than salvation at work here. God's loving plan encompasses even more than simply saving you. And that brings me to my fourth and final point. But let's review. God's plan has a special timing. And it's special in the sense of, well, that was special. Sometimes it, it's a little too special for our comfort. But God's timing is special. It's specially designed for us. My second point was that the process that he's used is, is sanctification. It's that ouch. And it's even, it's even better than this winning the sectional track meet. The third point was he has specific tools that he uses to bring about his loving plan, the spirit and faith and the truth. And the last point is the answer to the question that I've asked now three times. Why? This is God's surprising goal. This is his surprising goal. Look at our text. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Verse 14. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of Jesus Christ. God's surprising goal is the glory of Jesus Christ giving you the very glory of the Son of God. You see, salvation is a means to that end. Salvation is a means to bring us into the full glory of the angels in heaven. And even more than that, the full glory of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ the Lord. And that all this effort and all this work and all the planning and all the preparation and all the processes and all the timing all serve to this one end that you would have the glory of God. I think Jesus was alluding to this when he said to the woman at the well, when she was asking her theological questions, and he said, God is seeking worshipers. You see, God's loving plan ultimately, and I think also fundamentally, is about making a people who are fit to worship Him. Making a people who themselves, by His processes, by His timing, and by His tools, are caught up into His own glory and are made able to worship Him for all eternity. Hallelujah. And the Gospel is Jesus Christ coming down to share His glory by giving it up for you and for me. And the good news is that by faith in this Son of God, you are made a partaker in His glory. This is amazing. This to me is a surprising goal because for many years I was under the impression, and I believe it's a mistaken impression or at least an immature impression, 
that the big deal in the Christian faith was getting saved. But it's not. Salvation is not the end of the line for the Christian. Salvation is just the beginning. The end of the line is eternal glory. And I can show you this from text after text after text in the Bible. In fact, the reason I chose this text to preach on is because if I can demonstrate this point from this text, which I think I've done, it's very clear, which is an obscure place in the New Testament. You know, 2 Thessalonians 2 is not exactly in the top of our sort of life verses. If it's there, my friends, it's everywhere in the New Testament. And I can just show you one other place quickly which will make the point. God works all things together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 And then the stepsister of that verse, 8.29. Do you know it? Let's look at it. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Apparently, this was a theme for the Apostle Paul. And what Paul is saying here is the same thing he's saying in 2 Thessalonians. He's saying the greatest comfort is knowing that God is working out a plan not only to save you, but to make you a brother of Jesus, to bring you into the very company of the angels and saints and the holy ones, even Jesus Himself adorned with the very glory of God that you might worship and enjoy Him forever in eternity without interruption. Amen. In conclusion, the other day I was at Target, actually just before Christmas, and there was a, a young dad, and I am no longer a young dad, and he had bouncing on his shoulders a two-year-old girl, which I don't do anymore. Actually, that's why I'm working out this year, maybe so I can start doing that again. <laughs> And I looked at him and I said, you know, I used to be able to do that. And my sense was that it was his first and only child and um, brought back all kinds of memories to when Lydia was two. She's my firstborn. You know, when a child rides on her, especially her dad, but also her mom, when, when she's held up by her mother or rides, it seems like the shoulder ride is the unique province of dads. <laughs> Mothers are smart, you see. <laughs> but when a child rides on her or his dad's shoulders, what does she always say? I'm taller than everybody. I can see everything. She'll often say, I'm bigger than you, Dad. And I'll say, you're right. You know that feeling? 
Do you know that feeling from the Father in heaven who lifts you up out of your trial, puts you on His shoulders? Do you know the feeling of turning to Him saying, I'm taller than you, Dad. I can see everything. Do you know that feeling of being so cared for and loved by God that you know that the things in your life are happening according to His loving plan? He loves you, my friends. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ and our Father and Holy Spirit, our three-in-one God, we praise and adore you today. We praise you, Father, for planning from all eternity not only our salvation but our glory. We praise you, Son, Lord Jesus, having agreed in obedience to your Father and yet without diminishing your equality with Him to do the work, that difficult work of salvation and glorification. And we praise you, Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, for bringing the reality of this loving plan into our lives in the fullness of time and for abiding with us even in the midst of our troubles and, yes, our sins. We would ask that you would refresh us with this big picture again today. Have we trials or temptations? Are there troubles anywhere? We should never be discouraged. We take it to you, Lord, in prayer. And ask that in prayer we would be transferred to heaven itself and given a picture of what you're doing, not only in the world, but in our lives. We trust you and we love you as our Heavenly Father. And we ask it for the sake of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.